I uh, were driving up to a Whitney College, and I was trying to be extremely law-abiding. We've been in this series on Galatians, and I thought, you know, I'm going to do this exercise just to kind of see, like, is there a way for me possibly to not break any laws at all?
not only did he just say, I'm not pressing charges, but he actually lavished grace on him. But what he did in that moment is he told him, I am buying your soul. And Jean Valjean wrestled with the fact that he even had a soul and wrestled with what is this grace that I've just received. And there's another character in the story who very much contrasts this, this man who's received grace. And that is, you can correct me if you would like, um, Javert, is that correct? Yes. He's a man of the law, and he is zealous for the law. He wants justice, and he wants for this man, this convict, who he calls by a number, not even his name, to come back into prison and to get what he truly deserves under the law. There's one moment in here that really strikes me in the play, is you see both of these men praying. The man of grace offers a prayer, a sacrificial prayer for the life of another. And it is motivated, you can see, out of that gift of grace that he received in our world. And then you see the man of the law praying to the same God, but with a different motive. His motive is for this one who has fallen from grace, for justice to be done.
The true gospel is the justification of the Gentiles through faith apart from the law. And this was always God's plan. It wasn't something that the Christians came up with later after Christ came and died and rose again. This was always part of God's plan. The law cannot make people righteous. Think about John Valjean, right? Even grace changed him. It was grace that made him righteous. It wasn't the law that made him righteous. And it's the same with us. It's not the law that does this. The law was never intended to be the means by which we as believers get the inheritance as God's children. So here's the other issue that's on the table. Is Abraham was promised an inheritance, right? Through faith, not through the law. The law comes later, but then there's this group of people that says, no, this law is set and stuck, and even though you may receive the promise, in order to receive that inheritance, you have to get it by works. For the inheritance depends on the law, but it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace, can you say that with me? But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. By God's grace, we belong. That's how we come into faith, by God's grace. And it's by his grace that we stay. It's by his grace that we live in that inheritance, even in the face of the law. But the question is then, why was the law even given? If we already had this promise and this, this inheritance that would come through faith, why did God bring the law? Well, fine, just that. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. So this law was given not to create sin. Some have that misconception. Well, God never gave the law, we've never said no. Sin was already there, we're already sinning. What God did is he illuminated it so the people could see what it was. And then he put it bounds around it so that we could understand when we're stepping into or coming near or falling into sin. It was by God's mercy that he let us know the law. You think about the enemy in the garden? He already knew what separation from God was going to do to us. He already had the knowledge of evil. And he already knew how to tempt us and what sins were and how to get in there with, our, with the deception. God was coming and saying, I want you to be aware. This is sin. I'm going to tell you what it is. And that God desires for us to not live in that, but to live in a holy now, this passage here, man, we could have a whole semester <laughs> to wrestle with it. So many people are like, what, what does this actually mean? So we're not going to dive into that right here, but I'm going to read through it. It says, a mediator, however, applies more than one party, but God is one. Now, there was a mediator that brought the, the law down, okay, and then what he's saying there, but God is one. The important thing 
interesting for us to, I so my brain candy right now, so wants to take you on a turn in this, but I can't. <laughs> Point is, God brought the promise himself. Okay, and this promise was meant, it's a unifying promise for the people who believe. Is the law therefore, though, <clears throat> opposed to the promise of God? Is the law opposed to the promise and the grace of God? Some say, I want the promises and grace, but I don't want to have to deal with the law. Don't tell me I've sinned. Just give me God's grace. Well, Paul says, absolutely not. For a law had been given that could have, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. What he's saying is, there's a different purpose. The law has a different purpose than the promise. It's a complementary purpose, though. Since the scriptures, and here we say this, the, the law, the Torah, had locked up everything under the control of sin. So, the scriptures and law came and they took sin and they put it under control so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And the scriptures we're going to go into, that Tim's going to hit it next week, uh, understanding more about that guardianship that the law has over sin. I wanted to make room here today because I want to dive into something that um, a lot of kids actually experience and go big, which was last week. Super awesome. Love it. So many kids there. They had an opportunity to hear the redemptive story of God. And the law is definitely a part of that, and the promise is definitely a part of that. So I want to just go back in history a little bit to help string the story along to land us to where this became very, very important for us today. So all of you remember Genesis, the garden? Yes. We talked about Annie, we talked about the deception. Adam and Eve ate from the knowledge of good and evil. They had knowledge of good before, but now they have this knowledge of evil. Right? And in that, sin was in them in every generation that came out of them. But, even though they fell, right away we see the character of God. He loves his people. And he puts a plan in place of redemption for them. He provides for them, and he doesn't kick them out of the garden because he's angry with them. There is an anger there because he hates sin. But he's not hateful towards them. He kicks them out of the garden to protect them. Because once they ate from the knowledge of good and evil, they couldn't also eat from the tree of everlasting life. That's where the cherubim were, was to protect that way until the problem was sink could be taken care of. So the people go out, and we know with Noah, right, and we come to Abram, and God meets Abram, and turns his name to Abraham, and gives him the promise through faith. It says that one day the Redeemer is going to come from your line, that I'm going to dwell with my people. So in Genesis in Genesis 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, not just this one, everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring. So they go, they multiply, they go into Egypt, right? They multiply, they come, become enslaved. And then Moses gets raised up, drawn out of the water, 
saved into Pharaoh's house of all places. God prepares him, calls him, and then Moses is very important in the calling out and the moving of people out of slavery, out of their earthly slavery, into the wilderness. Now this is where God brings the law. And what hits me about the compassion of God is in the wilderness, he, he calls out Moses to the mountain, and he speaks to him. He gives them these parameters of the law, but he doesn't just say, here's all the things that the people have done wrong. By the way, Moses, you are already like, you know, you deserve death because you murdered somebody. And there's no way for you to do anything about it. He doesn't do that. He says, here's the law, and here's the atonement. Here's the law. You're going to know that you broke them. And here's the way to deal with it. It's a temporary way of pushing back of sins year after year with the atoning blood offered on the mercy seat of God and the holy of holies. But one day, there's going to be the ultimate high priest who is going to give his blood. So that that veil that separates people from the mercy seat of God will be accessible to all. So God provided in his mercy with the law a way to handle it. Otherwise, who could live? We would all die under the weight and the burden of that. So they receive the law and they go on and then it's it's 430 years from the promise to the law and then it's about 1,500 years. That's like from today all the way back to 580. That's how long until the fulfillment of the promise, the promise of Abraham, Jesus Christ, came in the flesh. Can you imagine how just repetitive and how worn and, and how that law just gets stayed in the generations that this is how you get rightness with God? Can you imagine that? Can you see that path that is born? I want us to have compassion on the people in the sense because this was hard for them to understand. That the grace of God overcomes this law that we've been walking in for 1,500 years. Jesus even, when he talked about the law, he even took it further. He said, not only that if you commit murder, are you committing a sin, but if you have hatred in your heart towards someone, you're committing a sin. Not only if you are an adulteress, but if you lust. Not only if you slander outwardly, but what about the gossip that you have around in your head? Who could really not sin then? So what I'm getting at is Jesus did not do away with the law. He fulfilled the law. He paid the price for that law, which we're going to expand a little bit in a minute here. But the people waited, and they were reminded by the prophets that one day you were going to have this relationship with God again that you were meant and designed to have in the very beginning. Ezekiel 37, 23 says, I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. I will clean, cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34 says, For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No, Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of 
But they started to step it aside because the deceiver came with a false gospel saying, wait a second, you have it wrong. You've missed it. Yes, you have received, in a sense, payment for the sins that you have, but in a sense, you're still under probation for the rest of your life. The eyes of the laws are watching you, and you need to make sure that you don't mess up, and you need to make sure that you appease that law by following the law of the Old Testament. Now, today, we might not deal with a temptation to go back to the Torah or the Jewish law so much, but perhaps we experience this in other agitations of legalism. Maybe, even for some of us, it is the first gospel that we have heard is the gospel of legalism, the, the moral theology, that you are supposed to clean your life up, and this is how you're supposed to act and behave as a Christian. And if that's the case, where is your Because the true gospel is a gospel of grace. A gospel that we can't earn through our works. But if we believe this false gospel of legalism, even today in our lives, what is the repercussions of that? On a small scale, it might be that we are constantly living in guilt and doubt. Constantly thinking, I am not good enough. Constantly thinking that when I do wrong, how is God going to ever want me? Maybe sometimes even we receive counsel in that way. Where we are told that we need to clean up our act before we can be accepted by God. But the opposite is true. You come before the throne of God and His grace and His mercy. Then He cleans you and then you, with that obedience and that love, you walk out that holy life with Him. But the point is to come to a merciful God. Not a God of the law, but a God who over the law has grace and mercy for us. This is the true gospel, and the true gospel matters. I think I'm so passionate about this, especially this week, because it, this is not just hypothetical. Conversations that I've had uh, over the years, but even especially this week, that there is this rustling of trying to understand the gospel just because they have fallen into different ways or attempted in different ways. You see, the enemy can get us to believe that it is not a gospel of grace. What happens is we start condemning ourselves and we start allowing the enemy of this deception to come in and to wreak havoc and destroy our life. The gospel of grace, that is what we long for. I challenge that when people say, oh, I am walking away from the faith, is it really faith? Because I believe that if you understood and knew the grace of God, that you so easily would just reach out to There's a verse in Galatians 5 that says that those who have fallen from grace are not the sinner who knows thanking God. Those who have fallen from grace are the ones who decide that they're going to try to walk out their salvation and their justification through the law.
Thank you. 